0: together thanks for listening to the kc morning show that's pretty good what is going on happy tuesday kansas city my name's heart soul tuesdays on this your kc morning show you know what we do we take back america reclaiming the radical progressive history we've always had it It's pretty damn good. Let's go back to that. Every Tuesday, it's me. It's you. It's Professor Harvey K., the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. My brother, Harvey K., he is traveling. Where's he at today? He and his wife, Lorna, who is a treasure. I think they're uh, in Michigan doing a little mini vacation. And the good professor, he deserves that. Absolutely. So on the show today, we are going to take it back last week, July 5th, the day after the fourth of july professor harvey k he and presidential candidate and friend of the show by the way marianne williamson marianne kicking off what she's calling the fire light Chats a la that of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had the fireside chats. See what she did there? Yep. Harvey and Marianne, they were fantastic. I watched it live. We're going to hit play today. A firelight chat, a mindful independence day. Rates, reviews, subscribe, do that thing that you do. Kansas City, back in your feeds tomorrow. My name's Hartzell. It is a good day. To be a Kansas City and oh absolutely. We will see you in the morning.
1: They are unanimous in
2: everybody welcome to tonight's firelight chat we're going to be talking about july 4th and the founding of this country i hope that you had a wonderful july 4th weekend Uh, you've probably heard me say before how important i think it is that when it comes to our national holidays all of our holidays really that they be mindful rather than mindless and none more so than when it comes to july 4th president john adams said that he hoped that every july 4th we would be revisiting the first principles of the united states you know we're living at a time when there are forces as we know actively trying to suppress america's history not teach our children what really happened. And this is particularly dangerous. We were already, as far as I'm concerned, in somewhat of a crisis. I remember when I ran for president last time, having read that there were 11 states in the union that did not require even half a year of um, American civics, history, government, and so forth. We have to learn these things. And the principles of our founding need to be etched, not just on parchment, not just uh, on glass or a marble wall somewhere they need to be etched on our hearts nothing makes us more invulnerable to anti-democratic forces than to have lost our own emotional connection to democracy what it means and one of the ways we learn about what it means is by learning how it all started you know um For July 4th this year, I was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire and the Black Heritage Trail Foundation does this reading of a speech by Frederick Douglass that he gave in 1852 about what July 4th means, he said, to the Negro slave. Boy, it was so powerful. And uh, I always find American history so rich and so enriching. Um, they say information is power. And I'll tell you, if you want power as a citizen, read our history. So we're going to have a good time tonight. And we are joined by a friend and colleague, one of my favorite American historians, Harvey Kaye. Harvey Kaye is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He's a member of the Retiree Council of the Wisconsin AFT and an award-winning author. His recent books are Thomas Paine and The Promise of America and The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and The Greatest Generation Truly Great. Also a book called FDR on Democracy.
3: Harvey, my friend, welcome. Great to see you. And I have to tell you is that the Frederick Douglass speech, almost sermon that he gave, he gave on July fifth, the day after July fourth. So it's appropriate for you to have started off tonight with a reference to Frederick Douglass, who also, by the way, is the speech itself that he delivered is truly remarkable. And we sh- I'm I'm going to bring it up as we go along. I think.
2: Yeah, it's. Um What, so extraordinary, and last year I was reading about Lincoln and learned more about the relationship between Lincoln and Frederick Douglass than I had ever known before. And in that speech that we're referring to by Frederick Douglass, he speaks at the beginning of the speech about his great admiration for the founders, his great admiration for the founding principles of this country, Then he goes into slavery as an abject evil. It is an abject transgression against those principles and so forth. But it's so significant that he starts by saying, hey, the principles are great. I have great admiration for the principles. It's just like when Martin Luther King said, we're here to just cash a check. So let's go back to the beginning. Obviously the beginning was July 2nd, not July 4th when it was actually signed. A lot of you might not know that it was signed on the second then it went to the printer. And when it came back from the printer, that was July 4th. So we consider that the birthday of this nation. But uh, tell us, Harvey, I think a lot of people, and also I wanna say, you know, Harvey, I have realized for years, Americans are interested in American history. A lot of people either just weren't taught certain things or don't remember certain things since it was in the seventh grade or whatever. But I've always found, not just for myself, but so many people I know, there's an instinctive understanding of the significance and the importance of this story. So um, give it to us, talk to us about uh, the group of people who came together in uh 1776 to sign to write first of all talk to us about the writing Thomas Jefferson and so forth okay Uh, something that's important (laughs) to
3: understand and I promise I will not go on and on about Thomas Paine but something very important to understand is that in the course of 1774 in the wake of the Boston Tea Party of late 1773 in the wake of the British imposing a series of acts called the coercive acts or intolerable acts in which they basically pursued a a military occupation of massachusetts and as a consequence of that the people of massachusetts rose up and north to south from maine which was part of massachusetts all the way down to georgia in towns and cities americans actually rebelled and basically denied the authority of the British officials. In some cases, they actually threw them out of their offices and they set up committees to govern themselves, committees to regulate economic life, committees to regulate uh, political, activity, uh, political affairs. Now, Thomas Paine arrived in America, and Paine is the man who's going to first call for an independent democratic republic in the American colonies, Paine arrived in late 1774 and was absolutely amazed at Americans' initiatives, at Americans' capacity to govern themselves, it would seem, even though they were not yet pursuing what we would call a revolution. They didn't call for independence. They didn't propose a democratic republic. They were still, if you like, subjects of Britain. And what they were fighting for was to have their rights as British subjects recognized in the same fashion, as their cousins back in England and Scotland and Wales.
2: I wanna stop for a minute so everybody's clear. So this is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. So Harvey was just talking about the Boston Tea Party. We all heard about it when we were kids. the American colonists who threw the tea back into Boston Harbor, and they were protesting what they called taxation right. without representation, uh, and this military occupation, and so forth. So the Boston Tea Party is considered the spark, the first spark that ignited the revolutionary fervor. So that's what Harvey's talking about. It was just the beginning, and then you're talking about Thomas Paine coming over. So that was 1773. You're saying Paine came over in very late
3: 1774. He basically people think of it as. January, 1775, because he came off the ship in terrible health and it took him a few weeks to recover. Now, the thing is, Lexington and Concord, Payne, Payne, to make the long story short, Payne, because of a letter of introduction from Franklin, ends up becoming the editor of the Pennsylvania magazine, a brand new magazine. And he becomes, never having been a writer before, he becomes a writer and an editor. And he's not, he himself is not yet a radical or a revolutionary. But he falls in love with America and its possibilities. And this is what he takes to writing in the magazine. In April, on April 19th of 1775, the, the shot heard around the world occurs. It's Lexington and Concord. This turns Paine into a capital P, Patriot. And he begins to write of the possibility, really, of further challenges to the British Empire. Now, but this is important. It's still the case, the Continental Congress is in session in Philadelphia, but nobody is talking, at least publicly, about independence, not at all. One or more members of the Continental Congress seek Payne out, specifically a man named Benjamin Rush. Rush was impressed by the fact that Payne he discovered, had written against slavery in America, something that he thought an important issue. And they become, if not friends, they become close acquaintances, and in the course of their acquaintanceship, Rush proposes to Payne that he write a pamphlet calling for separation from Britain and the possibility of a republic, which he could tell Payne himself is very interested in. Now, that summer, Payne leaves the magazine, and in the fall, he begins the writing. It's still the case, no revolution. So the spark in Boston was a spark of really rebellion. Payne Issues finds a printer and Issues, a very important pamphlet, one of the most radical pamphlets in modern history, Common Sense. In this pamphlet, it's really a call for Americans to recognize who they are and what their possibilities are. Now, what does that mean? Common Sense holds up a mirror to Americans to say, look at what you have already done. Think about what you might accomplish. And in fact, very late in the pamphlet, there's a line, which is, as I say, one of the three most radical lines in American history. And that, in fact, to me, it's the most radical, maybe in world history. He says, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And within days, this pamphlet becomes a bestseller throughout the colonies. And it inspires, again, Town councils and city councils, north and south, to consider the possibility of a war for independence. Not to renegotiate the empire, but a war for independence. And these towns, these communities start sending petitions to Philadelphia. And by the way, had these petitions not arrived, it's not likely that the Continental Congress ever would have moved to declare independence. I mean, to declare independence was an act of treason in in relation to the british crown and the british government so that spring these petitions are arriving and the, basically there's a mood in the in the continental congress these men are themselves radicals in diverse ways and the understanding is you know this popular fervor we better take we better take hold of it we better if you like harness it or it may well overwhelm us And so as a consequence, they create a committee, a committee that itself authorizes Jefferson. Jefferson is considered to be in the entire Continental Congress, the best writer, okay? He's not a fiery speaker. He made a comment to John Adams, why do I have to write it? Yeah, and it's interesting too, when you place Jefferson and Payne next to each other, because they remain friends throughout the decades upcoming. And when Jefferson was asked, who was the foremost writer of the revolution, He said Thomas Paine, though without doubt, Paine would understand the importance of Jefferson's. Jefferson wrote in a way that was more polished than Paine. Paine was a pamphleteer. He was a radical. He knew how to speak to people high and low, scare the higher ups, engage the spirits and and the fervor of the people below. But it is Jefferson who drafts declaration
2: let me ask you a question because you mentioned before that uh benjamin rush was anti-slavery yes he wrote
3: uh, there's a a, an article he wrote not in his own magazine but for another periodical it was called african slavery in america and basically it's when he arrived in philadelphia he could see from the, the boarding house that he was living in he could <laughs> see the slave market in philadelphia and he could not figure out how a people so interested in liberty could live with slavery in their midst so, and so Payne, in this pamphlet in contrast to all the other arguments usually made about colonizing africans back to africa his argument was no we owe them we owe these folks and we should make sure to provide an education, and we should compensate them in a way that affords them, if you like, a a means for a livelihood. And he actually proposed the idea of lands in the west towards the Appalachian Mountains, okay? And the other thing is that it was assumed, and he said something to the effect of it will be a buffer against Native American attacks. But I also want to point out, so for the record, is that Payne had great respect and actually wrote additional articles in which he demanded that the Americans, Anglo-Americans and others, recognize Indian, Native American rights to land and that they be treated as equals. I mean, it's a very interesting way in which he's trying to deal with this.
2: Well, he was radical, And, and that idea that everyone should be treated equally, of course, is what finds expression in the Declaration. So when you talk about Thomas Paine and the way he feels that the Anglo, the European American, the Native American, Black Americans, well, slaves at that time, enslaved people, all be treated equally, that radical proposition, of course, finds itself expressed in the Declaration of Independence. It was radical at that time, and apparently it's considered radical by some people today, but it is the first principle. The Declaration of Independence is
3: undeniably a revolutionary document, okay? And and why do I say undeniably? Because there are those who have tried on the right to lay claim to it and turn it into a document that also offers a a basis for conservative political thought, okay? But let's remember, okay, it's self-evident truths. It has to do with equality. It has to do with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if people go beyond those lines, they will see that it is an argument right in the declaration for democracy, undeniably so. Now, we know full well that the men who authored that document were not necessarily keen on affording African-Americans, women, and Native Americans equal rights. But that's not the point. That revolutionary document, and this, I I really want to emphasize this because it's too, you know, I remember students of mine would say, oh, they were hypocrites. And I said, no, you're missing the point. And this is why I want to bring Frederick Douglass into it, okay? You know, Frederick Douglass lambasted the American slavery system. I mean that in that what to the slave is the Fourth of July, and all too often people fail to read to the very end of that speech, that sermon which he delivered actually in a, in a chapel. And when the, if you go to the end, what you, he says is the promise afforded at the founding is so powerful that he continues to have hope in America, and he was right to feel that way. Well, he doesn't just say that at the end of the speech; he says that at the beginning of the
2: speech. You know. You're referring to your um, students saying that these men were hypocritical. We, they're referring, of course, to the fact that 41 of the 56 signers were themselves slave owners. But to me, Harvey, that's always defined the struggle that we still live now. This almost bipolar consciousness of the American uh, mind that that we are both. We are both that which stands on these incredibly radical and enlightened principles of Equality and democracy, and have been in every generation from the beginning, um, infused with forces that, for their own ideological and financial purposes, have no intention whatsoever yeah, of seeing I, those, I, I those absolutely, I absolutely agree with you, uh, and nothing I said best before best.
3: would challenge anything you just said. And in fact, I want to go further. I, I, I deeply believe, and I'm saying not, I'm not trying to impress anyone with this belief. I deeply believe that that promise was so powerful that ensuing generations knew that that promise referred to their lives. And there was no way that they were going to allow either the founders themselves or ensuing generations of ruling elites or powers that be to deny that promise to them. Like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give credit where credit is due. Bill Bill Moyers once said to me, that promise is the promise that continues whether you are native born or newly arrived alike it is the promise
2: and that includes today so yes. there is revolutionary fervor in the air today um i was the day you know when you look in the gettysburg address and lincoln said one nation under god shall have a rebirth of freedom that a government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth this whole idea of a rebirth of freedom sometimes it seems like these principles are dying around us and yet in era after era we see this rebirth occur and i think there's there a potential a, uh, for a rebirth yes. right now yeah. because people are realizing that There are forms of tyranny among us now, far more insidious. They are mainly economic forms of tyranny. Um, The corporate aristocracy and all of that, which are limiting uh, our ability to live as equal free citizens even now. And there is this sense coming up from the bottom of things that we need, who was it who said that the American Revolution is ongoing? Who was it who said that?
3: It sounds to me like that's definitely something Lincoln or FDR would have said. I know I wrote it myself sometime in my Thomas Paine book. No, that, I mean, that really is the case. You know, that I mean, must continue. there's not, look, criticism is essential. But one of the things that people have discovered in generation after generation is criticism empowered by that promise of the declaration is a criticism that inspires, not merely a criticism that causes cynicism. Okay. I mean, you know, you and I, I hear what you say all the time. I, I'm, I think of myself as one of your advisors. And when you talk about, When you talk about, at your launch, about when crises emerge, Americans have risen to that occasion and have reached back and pursued abolition. They have pursued women's rights. They have pursued the struggles of labor. And you know what? In every one of those occasions, the core of those movements rewrote the declaration in order to make sure that people heard their right to that promise 1848 at seneca falls okay elizabeth Cady stanton and others issued the declaration of the rights of women it was literally modeled directly i mean it really was the declaration written so as to include women okay um labor struggles over and over again rewrote when i say rewrote they grab hold of the declaration and they write it to empower themselves because they want to lay claim to the revolution because they still feel it
2: so it the whole idea is if we are to stand as a nation on the idea that all men are created equal with inalienable rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that cannot just mean uh, white people it also means Black people and people of color. It can't just mean men. It also means women. It can't just mean straight people. It means also uh, LGBTQIA. And we are living through that right now. And one of the, I think, the main ways that that's expressing itself now is it can't just mean rich people, right? And in fact, because that's right. in our country today that is based on financial advantage, which is absolutely unacceptable if we are to consider ourselves responsible for aligning our public policy uh, with the Declaration of Independence. When you have children who are going to schools in places where they don't even have the resources to teach a child to read by the age of eight, and you have that child therefore therefore. Uh, standing more of a chance of incarceration than high school graduation, then I think that we would agree that the government is not doing its job Uh, to secure the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, Harvey, as we go further, so that it's not just all men are created equal, not just the inalienable rights, but also that governments are instituted to secure those rights. I mean, that's so radical because before (laughs) then, governments were instituted to secure the entitlement, to secure the rights of those who are you know, we're the aristocrats. And that's what's happening right now. Our government is doing more to secure the rights of huge multinational corporations to increase their profit than to ensure um, the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of um, the average American. And also everyone, I want you to remember that after that in the Declaration of Independence, having said that it is the, uh, that governments are instituted to secure our rights Uh, It also says that if government's not doing its job, then it is the right of the people uh, to alter it or abolish it. And that's what we need to do right now. Yes,
3: absolutely. And I just want to point out our two greatest presidents were standing on that declaration. In the case of, as you pointed out, the Gettysburg Address, you can hear when he says government of the people, by the people, for the people, a new birth of freedom. That is the declaration. Lincoln said... On his way to his first inauguration, he stopped in Philadelphia and he said, every political sentiment that I have had emanates from my reading of the declaration. Then later, Franklin Roosevelt, even before the document, the statement, the speech that you and I both admire and that you have embraced for the 21st century, the Economic Bill of Rights, when he ran for president in 1932, a dozen years before the Economic Bill of Rights, he said that the industrial titans in other words the corporate bosses have subverted the declaration of independence and thus we need a new declaration a second declaration a declaration of economic rights i mean phenomenal kinds of stuff and
2: there's a new generation of economic titans economic royalists right. which are there's one again.
3: more thing that fdr was great at doing and when he accepted the nomination in 1936 he said you know those economic royalists think we want to overthrow american institutions no what we need to do is overthrow their power okay basically and you know it really is the case you can hear you can if you look if you look closely if you listen closely you can see the declaration reverberating through american life look i mean right now right now your proposal for an economic Bill of Rights is in that spirit, because here's the point. when FDR said is ask yourselves, what does it take for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? As you said, education. When we asked our students, when we were looking at the declaration in the first year level class, so what does it take to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And they laid out a whole series of things that are decidedly economic and social rights to make life liberty and the pursuit of happiness possible right by the way and i want to go a step further which is really important if you don't mind the declaration people often think there's like something lost between the declaration and the constitution and there was undeniably certain elements lost but if people read the preamble to the constitution we the people of these United States in order to form a more perfect union, they will hear the echo of the declaration. And here's the other thing. Cause we've mentioned now a whole host of folks who've had to fight for their rights. I want to remind everyone that the framers, that is that second cohort of founders who put the constitution for, again, for all their faults and failings, they never put in the constitution, a property requirement for office holding or a test a religious test or religious oaths in other words there was to be no discrimination based on religion okay and that's fundamental that too goes back to thomas paine's call for separation of church and state in common sense or as he put it the only role for government in religion is to make sure that people get to practice it as they choose or not I, or i've heard not. you say it before or, or not. not he didn't they say, didn't say or not but that's what he meant
2: so let me ask you a question you just referred to the fact that a lot was lost uh between the declaration and the end uh, between the declaration and the writing of the well i mean the standard thing has way? to
3: do with the fact that that if all men are created equal then clearly shouldn't right but of Slavery course should they, they consider the, the fact that even the framers could not bring themselves to use the word slaves instead They got around it. They never actually used the word slaves. Is it because they were aware of history and how bad it would look? Is it because they really were split, quite likely, between those who were ready to abolish and those who were ready to sustain slavery? I mean, whatever it, I mean, they reduced it it, in many ways by not owning up to what it really was. On the other hand, on the other hand, it is the case that the Constitution does does not use the term slavery. And moreover, Neither, as I said before, does it create some system by which you had to own property to serve in in federal offices, or for that matter, which is also why it's so hard to understand how poll taxes and other things were ever permitted. But of course, the federal government was not as strong in the days that existed as it later came to be.
2: So going back to the writing of the Declaration, I think it's a new American library, I'm not sure, actually has an addition. Where you uh, see yes. the original document that Jefferson signed and then you, that Jefferson wrote and then you see uh, what the declaration ended up being and you see all the lines that were crossed out because had they been left in, the southern states would not have gone along. And of course, one of those had to do with the fact that of all the, the sins, the crimes of George the Third, one of them was that he had brought slaves to this continent, and of course the southern states would not go along. So I was reading a book once about, um, Benjamin Franklin sitting next to Thomas Jefferson (laughs) while all these people were chopping up the work, right? And taking out lines and Jefferson was going crazy. And how Benjamin Franklin was trying to distract (laughs) him by telling him jokes. Uh, But of course, because Jefferson himself, of course, had slaves. Maybe Jefferson himself was trying to create a law. Yes.
3: And uh, I do want, this is also uh, something important uh, because people, they failed to understand that the declaration itself actually empowered in real terms abolition and i'll explain to you what i mean the very first people the very first yeah. americans to grab hold of the declaration to really make it the, the document it became were african americans in new england who in some cases slaves who created petitions so they created they they wrote up petitions demanding that the court free them because look the declaration says all men are created equal and that that's critical moreover the abolitionist movement begins to take off with the issuance of the declaration of independence before that there were individuals who opposed slavery such as pain and and others but it was the case that not until that declaration is issued is there kind of that empowerment of that that aspiration to bring an end to slavery that doesn't absolve anyone of anything but it does say that you can't just look and say well there was slavery you know it it was a crime against humanity of course slavery is a crime against humanity but it's also the case that the founders whether they all liked it or not were literally empowering the struggle to end slavery and that struggle involved not only white abolitionists and black abolitionists but southern slaves themselves who over and over again sought their freedom by running into the woods or running into the swamps and later during the revolution itself running to the union lines to demand inclusion in the struggle against the confederacy
2: that's why i think this is such a frederick Douglass moment he's very much in the zeitgeist right now he himself uh having been an escaped slave he himself being such a genius as at oration and at writing he himself becoming friends with lincoln um yeah i don't think
3: i I don't think most people i don't think people i mean people if they know frederick remember that Bizarre comment by uh, was it Donald Trump that <laughs> Frederick Douglass is doing good things as if he had no idea who he was, obviously. But it is the case that most of us don't yeah. even realize. Yeah. yeah, right. But you do remember that yeah. moment. But most of us don't <laughs> even realize that Lincoln and Douglas, however much Douglas had been a major critic of Lincoln's reservations and he- hesitancy to act, they became friends. They became friends, and that's that's oh, important
2: so it's my sense and i know for me personally but i i feel that it's the energy of the nation at this moment that so much of the anti-corporate fervor at this moment is an extension where whether people are conscious of it or not but it is an embrace of the principle of the declaration of independence that all are created equal i think that's why you know when uh, Martin Luther King said a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Why are so many people who are you know, cis, heterosexuals are just outraged about what's happening to transgender right now? They're being so targeted. I mean, there is this living sense that goes through time that whether you're a black American, a Jewish American, a Hindu American, a gay American, a straight American, a non-binary American, a transgender American, no matter what you are, if you're an American, The idea here is that all men are created equal with the same inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what we have now are not only the ideological forces, which would deny that, those rights to people. I mean, those are clearly there. But there are also the economic policies that while not directly stating that, are creating situations that transgress against the very idea of equality. And we're living at a time right now, you have to be financially advantaged to have adequate health care. You have to be financially advantaged to have access to higher education. And that right there goes against the principles of the Declaration no, absolutely. of Absolutely, okay? without
3: question. And I, I, I do want to say that it reverberates through American history which is, of course, the beauty of FDR when he said the economic royalists, the Tories of the 1930s. And, you know, and I have every confidence you will not hesitate to be that kind of president who knows how to grab hold of that image and that mindset. But it is the case that it's been a long time since we've heard a president pick up on that's that kind of spirit and i also want to say that the words of the declaration didn't just reverberate through american history they reverberated globally the audience actually for the declaration arguably was the world the world okay because they're letting people know that americans are now going to become a people the question of who would be included in the people might well have yet to be settled but it was a statement that americans are not simply british and by the way that reverberation goes right into what we used to call the third world in the 20th century well 19th century the movements of nationalism that take place around the globe are quite often led by folks who read the declaration ho chi minh for what it's worth Okay, who led the Vietnamese Revolution, he was moved by Jefferson's words. Um, some have argued even they were more powerful in his mind than perhaps the words of Karl Marx, to give you an example. Okay.
2: Well, you know, when you said it's yet, it had yet to been settled, it still has but yet yes, to does. be settled. And I, and I've said often, even in this campaign, it's not just not only white, but black, not only straight, but gay. It's also not just Americans. It doesn't just say all Americans are created equal. It says all men are created equal. Harvey, talk to me about those men gathered in Philadelphia. How many days did they spend together? in the experience of writing and ratifying. uh, That's a good, remember, the
3: Second Continental Congress begins in September of 17, 17, is it, it's in the course of 1775. It's not until March, April, May, those kinds of months that the committee actually begins to work. But it's also the case they had all, they didn't stay in Philadelphia, all of them, they went home, and then they came back. The key thing is, it's Jefferson, it's Adams. I can't remember the sorry, I can't remember the other names of the committee members. But Jefferson's the key. Adams is the propulsion for this kind of activity. And, you know, I mean, I would tell everyone as entertaining as it may, as it may strike them, there's a great Broadway play, a musical, 1776 whatever its faults it's it's worth watching i actually think it's it's a beginning point for them people to dig into this this kind of question i'm going to tell you one thing i don't mean to take anything away from the declaration but i want to make something clear during the revolution from 1776 until 1783 when the treaty of paris is signed the document that actually defines the revolution is actually common sense pain's common sense it's after the revolution yeah. that the okay. declaration becomes that kind of document that and it's interesting because the revolution is then accomplished mm-hmm. the declaration then it, it it takes on added meaning because it is actually the statement americans are making of themselves a new people
2: you know what blows my mind all the time to think about those people didn't have telephones. Right. <laughs> Those people didn't have computers. Those people didn't have the internet. They had no way. So some of them would go off to Massachusetts. Some would go to Virginia. Some would go to New York. And some would stand, be in Pennsylvania. And yet this, you know, it's often <laughs> referred to as a genius cluster. That somehow.
3: I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at, at the, the, at the, at the idea. I mean, I mean, you know, you know very, again, there are any number of people who based the, the you know, a good number than the 41 slaveholders who were, who were si- signers. But it it truly is the case. They signed off on a document that said all men are created equal. And I love the fact you mentioned that there were no phones and all that. I mean, if if you were going to get the message out, you were going to get the message out by way of the post. And that would have been a rider or actually a ship. So from Philadelphia, the ship setting out would have taken a bit of time to get to South Carolina to let folks know there that indeed, a, re- a revolution had now been declared. And I I always love the fact if you don't mind my telling this backing up just slightly. So when, when Common Sense came out, Adams bought a f- three copies. Okay, he bought three copies, and he kept one for himself. And he sent sent two up to New England up to uh, Quincy up to the Boston area to Abigail. And he, he wanted her response to what the, the common sense call for revolution. And a democratic republic what she thought and everyone knows the line that she writes back to him and the line is you know remember the ladies and what's curious is she she does that in response to reading common sense and she says if if you don't remember us we're going to have to come down there and make a revolution of our own i mean it had this kind the the spirit is taking hold here and then adams no one she said that and adams actually this is the beauty of it adams writes back now they had a a, they were a loving couple i mean there's no question so there's always that element of a smile on their faces when they say these things adams writes back to her and says not you too we are hearing that that students at the colleges are rising up against their masters that slaves in the carolinas are rising up against their ma- when he said masters he means professors hearing that the slaves in the carolinas are rising up against their masters the word was out by way of common sense and it really is this dynamic that propels propels the fa- the, the founders To move now. Don't get me wrong. I think a goodly number of them had already thought in those terms, but they did not have the courage to act upon those sentiments. It's that—that's a a primary example that Americans, you know, Americans should read common sense. They should read the Declaration again. Let it inspire them. Read the Gettysburg Address. Do those things.
2: I agree with that. I agree with that. So what you just said is that Abigail Adams was the first uppity woman in America, and it's fascinating what you're saying that common sense. You know when when ideas take hold in the mind, really started the revolutionary fervor in terms of people realizing there could be radical equality. Also, in that Frederick Douglass speech in 1852, he did refer to the founders as brave men. I mean, even those who were slaveholders, it's interesting, were risking their lives to sign the declaration because if the British had won the war, they all would have been hanged as traitors. So it's interesting. And of course, this applies to Jefferson too. He was a slave owner. They all knew on some level, even if they weren't allowing themselves to consciously own it. And of course, what's fascinating about Jefferson is he did allow himself to consciously own it even as he held slaves. And Washington, of course, was so close to Lafayette. Lafayette was major anti-slavery. And, you know, I remember I took a journey Mm -hmm. not that long ago to Mount Vernon, and they were telling the stories about how um, Lafayette was always telling Washington, you need to release your slaves. And there's quite a story and a drama. And then the slaves who after Washington's death uh, became business people in in that area there's so much even now historical research we don't even know but what's interesting to me is that there were people who some who consciously realized i'm beyond hypocritical but some who perhaps didn't consciously allow Mm. themselves to admit it that you say you believe in freedom but you yourself are holding slaves when there could be no greater transgression but who nevertheless were willing to sign a document Risking their lives to stand for a principle that they themselves did not live. It's incredible. Yeah. It's just,
3: there's, yeah. The, the yeah. I mean, of you know, that, that's, I'm remembering every year when we would cover the declaration in class. And I told you, of course, some students just came back as hypocrites. And I, and I tried to work it through, work through with them the contradict that people are filled with contradictions. And sometimes the contradictions work out for the better. And sometimes the contradictions hold people back. They they won't allow what Lincoln later said, the better angels of our nature to prevail. But the best way to make the better angels of our nature to prev- prevail is for Americans to have solidarity with each other and not put up with what they are enduring now. I, I can't emphasize that enough.
2: That's exactly right. I- I also think that the fact that it's, once again, in the zeitgeist, that that people are reckoning now with the issue of slavery on a whole different, right. uh, on a deeper level, with the whole issue of what all this meant historically and what the legacy of slavery means now, it's important. And I don't think it's an accident when you look at what uh, forces are trying to do, banning books, suppressing um, what, queer black history being taught in colleges, um, this whole critical race theory argument. There are people trying to suppress the very conversation that would liberate us, the very conversation which if we go into it and face the pain of it all and face the contradictions of it all and hold the juxtapositions of it all would actually enable us to get beyond it. And we have to have the conversation in order to get beyond it. But we have to have the conversation with a a deep recognition that people are flawed, a deep recognition of the ironies of history, the contradictions of history, I want to tell you a story. I worked as a non-denominational minister Mm -hmm. in Detroit, Michigan, Mm -hmm. in Warren, Michigan, a um, a, a, part of Metro Detroit. And I used to hold, it was a multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural church. We, 3,500 people on Sunday mornings, racially integrated, it was incredible experience. And one of the things that we did there was Mm -hmm. we had racial healing circles. And there was this one woman, and at one, of the, at, one of the, um, at one of the circles, there was a woman who started expressing with great anger her issues about slavery in America. And one of the white men who was in the circle said, I've heard all this, I've heard all this. And she said something so profound. She said, but you haven't heard it from me and he heard her, and that was the value. So I think these conversations um, are, are so, so important. So I think the point, Harvey, is whether we're talking about race or we're talking about economics, the, the revolution continues. The commitment of Americans to adhere to the principle of equality for all is as relevant today as it was in 1776. Yes, and and
3: I I want to add something to that notion of a conversation, okay, because I actually think there's something that needs to be at the heart of that conversation, and that it starts in education. That is, if we're going to tell the story of America, undeniably we cannot overlook ironies the tragedies the exploitation the oppression but i think it is fundamental that we include at the heart of it the story of the struggles of every generation in all their diversity to to lay hold of that promise of the declaration and win their rights and their inclusion in we the people and their enhancement their if you like enlargement of the very idea of what the powers of the people are and I think it's important that we come to realize the degree to which those struggles stand on the shoulders of the struggles that came before them. Okay. I, I mean, I think that what, what, what often happens is, you know, is there are those who argue, well, we have to teach, we have to teach right to the dark side of American history. And then there are others, the more, you know, conservatives say, no, 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 we have to teach, you know, the declaration as if it's a divinely, you know, divine document. And that's what we have to teach about America. No, I think we have to teach about the struggles to realize the promise. Oh. And that would literally be the capacity to go beyond the simple debate of divinely inspired on the one hand or hypocrisy on the other.
2: Harvey, I heard you say once something about Martin Luther King and how when he got depressed, he he thought of something, a line from Thomas Paine. Tell us about that.
3: So, in the mid to late '60s, when he was confronted with the challenge of Black Power, on the one hand, and the hostility, the the, the violence that that he confronted in the North when he came up to Chicago, not to mention the the dangerous uh, uh, situation in Memphis when he aligned himself with the sanitation workers there, which led ultimately to his assassination by you know that, that white supremacist. It was, it was said, and he actually included it in a speech of his and in one of his books, which I have behind me, but I forget the title at this moment. He said that at those moments, he would turn to a quote from Thomas Paine, who he admired, never criticized. He said, think of that line. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. That gave him a refreshment. It gave him fresh hope. And i think that's something we should keep keep in mind because it's both absolutely true and absolutely false that sentence but it does remind us that we always live at a historical moment that history remains subject to our own capacities to organize to make changes or to perhaps to rally around the right leader
2: i don't know why you say it's absolutely true and absolutely false to me the line that we have it in our power to begin the world over again to me because i believe in that phrase through the grace of god i think we always have that power
3: (laughs) and that's where you look i subscribe to it i subscribe to it it's in all my books it's up here on my wall but it is the case that I also know that we are also endowed by the past with memory. And as a consequence, there's only so much that we truly want to begin all over again. Yeah. That's all. It's just look, it's the intellectual in me which questions everything.
2: Well, the past, the memories of the past can be alchemized into memories that spur us towards better things.
3: Ah, oh, that that's why I'm in the that's why I became a historian. Not simply to deconstruct, but to help people realize why it is they feel as they do. Because I do believe Americans carry this memory, even if they can't recite it, of Payne's arguments and common sense and the Declaration of Independence.
2: Amen. So if the abolitionists could lead to the end of slavery as an institution, if the women suffragists could lead to the end of the institutionalized oppression of women, if the labor movement could lead to the end of the excesses of the Gilded Age, and if the civil rights movement could lead to the end of segregation. I think all of us can take inspiration from what our ancestors have done, and we too can cast off the yoke of economic oppression and injustice that right. is brought and forth. I, and to put all of
3: this into the context of in- the neoliberal question, Neoliberalism emerges as a major ideology and political economy in the late 1970s. The last 45 years of neoliberalism have seen, have seen a major assault on the democratic achievements of working people, women, and people of color. Okay. So it's not just inequality that emerges. These have been, this has been a war on the rights achieved historically, and especially the rights achieved in the 30s and the 60s. And I say this because we have seen since 1978, 79, 80, we have seen the advancement of authoritarianism. The authoritarianism did not emerge with Donald Trump. This has been, you know, they used to use the term creeping socialism on the far right or creeping socialism amongst conservatives. We have seen creeping authoritarianism ever since the late 1970s the struggle right now is to not simply defend our rights there's a lesson in all of this the only way you can defend your rights is by creating new rights afford your children rights you have not yet secured for yourself
2: Well, authoritarianism is attacking democracy from the outside. Neoliberalism has been eroding it from the inside. And when you look at these recent uh, Supreme Court decisions, whether it has to do with affirmative action or the student loan debt or religious freedom, there's so many things that they're doing now to proactively diminish the rights of America.
3: The struggle to undo um, the Voting Rights Act, the struggle to undo the Voting Rights Act, the struggle to control women's bodies, the struggle to deny workers' rights, That's inside and outside. I I, I really think that we've got to see the intimate connection between neoliberalism and authoritarianism.
2: In neoliberalism, everyone, the idea that basically corporate profit should take precedence over democratic and humanitarian ideals, that's really what it amounts to. And the canard was, of course, that if we did that, that this would be good for everybody because then all the money that these people made would trickle down and job creation lift up which we know it didn't. It left millions of, millions of people without even a life vest. But even more than that, even more than the economic damage is all the human damage that is yeah. wrought by the economic injustice. And of course, the destruction of our democracy, if we allow it to continue, um, uh, the late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, you can basically either have large amounts of money concentrated in the hands of a right. few or you can have democracy. You cannot have both. And that's why the principles of the Declaration of Independence do apply to economics as much as to anything else. And that's why, of course, Harvey, the American historian talking to us about what's happened in the past, you never um, you never separate this story from its economic right. significance and right. relevance in every generation, including our own, which is why we met over the conversation around an economic bill of rights, why we work together on a 21st century economic bill of rights, and why everyone we talk uh, in in this campaign about a new economic beginning. And to me, a new economic be- beginning is a rebirth of freedom in the United States. Um, Lincoln declared one, and now it's up to us to declare a new one, a new rebirth um, in our time. So that just as as Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, that that new birth of freedom was so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from the earth. Uh, Our contention here is that it's perishing now because we've become a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations, and we need to fix that and just as other generations in all the ways that we've talked about from the beginning rose up to repudiate injustice and tyranny, it's our turn now. And uh, all those things that we've talked about that are the current reflections of injustice and tyranny, we have to fix those things. Harvey Kay, thank you. There is no uh, greater service than to educate and inform because that empowers people. And I think particularly now, there is no greater empowerment than to learn our history. Because when we learn our history, you and I, where you and I so agree is if you know the history, uh, you're excited about the history. You are honest about the dark spots. You are honest about the shadows. You are honest about the problems. But once again, you identify with the problem solvers. They did it in their time. Absolutely. Thank you, us. Marianne. Thank you, Harvey. Much love to you. Thank you.
1: Just put my spine out of place. Amen. my school is insane. Hey my work's down the drain. But she's a total blam blam. She said she had to squeeze a gotcha and then she, oh, I'm tired, so it's alright. I hear her, don't be unkind away. I can't take her this time, don't be. Tend to be, don't crash here. There's only room for one, here she comes as she comes. Silent